there's much that's complex in the Christian life. I've got some pretty dense theological books in my library at home. I have to be really sure that I've eaten well, that I'm not tired, that I've got nothing else in my head when I open up some of these books because it's going to demand everything that I have. There's an awful lot in the Christian faith that's rather straightforward, not terribly difficult to understand. I'm humbled by that reality, and I hold a child's book in my hand. I spent uh, uh, a few hours this week trying to find the perfect triangle. I, I come up with something like this, and I thought, that's pretty good. But it's going to be too distracting because it's got this thing on the top of it. And somebody surely will find something clever to say about it, and the triangle will be a distraction. So I decided I'd grab a child's book, seeing I'm the principal of an elementary school. My First Shapes, it's published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I made my way through it, and lo and behold, here, one of the first shapes we learn is the triangle. I love this little page because it not only says triangle, but it also shows you a triangle. And then what really sold me in this child's book was this picture of the quilt on the opposite side of the triangle because what it does is that it shows multiple triangles perfectly united to create this beautiful mosaic. And I thought, sounds a little corny, and I tend not to do corny, but I also know that I'm going to have their attention because not only do they love children's books, oh, but it also gives you a visual of the profundity of the truth that we're talking about in Romans chapter 12. Those of you who listen well, and many of you do, know where I'm going because I introduced to you last week the triangle. And I told you that though I didn't think Paul had a triangle in his mind when he wrote Romans 12, it certainly outlines as such. And so we said at the top of this triangle was our relationship with God and that that informs all other relationships. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 12 in verse 3 because Romans 12, 1 and 2 describe our relationship to God. Romans 12, 3 to 8 is going to describe, 3 to 13, I'm sorry, is going to describe our relationship to one another. And then 12, 14 into chapter 13 is going to describe our relationship with the outside world. Those are the three primary relationships that we as believers share in common. And as we're going to see, these relationships, rightly motivated and energized by the Spirit of God, forms a beautiful mosaic. It's really a wonderful opening illustration for you to see something so simple in a child's book. Yes, there are truths within Christendom that are this easy, at least to explain to you. When it comes to living those relationships, uh, most of you in this room are old enough to sit there and smile with me and say, oh, oh yeah. Once we start trying to live those relationships, we know we run into a little bit more difficulty. So I have reminded you of these relationships in the Christian life, 
these three angles, if you please, that represent three different sets of biblical relationships as we see and as we're unpacking in Romans chapter 12. The top angle, we said, was our relationship to God, one of the lower angles, our relationships to one another within the body of Christ, not just this body, but other local assemblies and other international assemblies as well. So one of the reasons why we pray for Nairobi and Bangladesh and upstate New York. Two weeks ago in verse 3, Paul introduced the theme of personal humility. We talked, talked a lot about that where he writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to do so with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This, as we said, is not you to think lowly about yourself, or to think of yourself as a doormat, but instead to think with a right mind relative to your relationship to God. It ought to drive you to personal humility. But personal humility is not an end in and of itself. Last week, as we began unfolding more of Romans 12, 4 to 8, we saw that Paul connected human personal, excuse me, personal humility with corporate unity. That those two things hold together. He calls us to sober reflection and personal humility because our unity depends on our personal humility. It's pretty straightforward. I wouldn't say it's as easy as a kindergarten reader, but I would say to you that it's fairly easy to understand that if you lack humility, it's probably not going to make for unity. It's true in your own marriage. It's true in your family. It's certainly true in a group of this size. If you want to be first, if you want to be the king or queen of the hill, it's going to be awfully difficult for you to submit to another person. It's going to be awfully difficult for you to defer to another person, especially if you think you're better than they are. Personal humility paves the way for corporate unity. That's been one of the themes that we've been holding up. Personal humility is the way to corporate unity, or the last week I said it in a little bit of a different way. Personal humility is proven in relationship to one another. I heard this stinging expression a couple of years ago. You, you know how much of a servant you really are when you're treated like one. There's a lot of truth to that. And it's, it's real. Some of you perhaps have been treated like you were the lower rung on the ladder. And what happens? Your back stiffens. Especially if you've got power in the workplace. Especially if you've got a master's degree. Especially if you've been a leader all of your life and now all of a sudden somebody's telling you to take out the garbage. Uh-uh-uh. That's below my pay grade. Said no real Christian ever. This week, verses 6, 7, and 8, we learn that you and I each have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. That's the theme for this morning. I want to say it again. And I want to emphasize the fact that every single one of you sitting in this room and every single one of you who is in Christ, out in streamland, listening to me right now, every single one of you, there are no exceptions here, have been administered the grace of God so that you might exercise that grace within the local assembly in which you presently reside for the strengthening of that body. Wow. No pressure. It's a great pressure, though. It's not even pressure. You and I, even those of us in this room and out in streamland who suffer with low self-esteem or 
or have been abused over our lives. And I've, I've been a counselor long enough not to hurry past those categories whatsoever. But here, here we see our Lord reaching into our very beings and saying to us, you've been gifted. You've been gifted. Not only have you been gifted, but you're needed. We belong to one another. Some of you found it really hard to believe that I actually said out loud a couple of weeks ago and even last week that I needed you. Well, Pastor, we know you've got the S tattooed on your chest. <laughs> I hate to let you down. It's not there. And yes, I need you, just like you need me. We are one body with diverse parts, each needed to be exercised in order for the body to grow, to mature. That's not an overstatement. That's literally what the Bible says. We are one body, diverse parts. Those, those men and women that Jill Lancaster, Jeff Lancaster, are ministering to in Nairobi, insofar as they are in Christ, are our brothers and sisters. Literally. I am closerly, more closerly, I just said that. I am more closely connected to Christians in Nairobi than I am to some of my family members, my own bloodline, who are apart from Christ. That might be unsettling for some of you. It might be unsettling for some of you who struggle with the diversity of ethnicities that are represented, not only here on Staten Island, but around the world. You're much more comfortable around your kind. And there's, there's a certain awareness of that kind of thing. But Paul, speaking to a fairly diverse Roman world, is saying those, those worldly dividers are down when Christ appears. We are one body with diverse parts, each needed to be exercised in order for the body to grow, to mature. And so we're going to see that the Holy Spirit graciously gives gifts to build the body of Christ. Two words I want you to keep in mind, words and deeds. That's all I want you to keep in mind, words and deeds. You're going to see two groups of gifts being described here. One, one, one set is verbal, the other set nonverbal, usually nonverbal, more action-oriented. Can I say that? The Holy Spirit gives these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, or as the sermon title says, gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us. I have certain gifts. You don't. You have gifts. I don't. All that is laid out by a sovereign God as he pleases. So, so if you're chomping a little bit because you don't have what you feel like you want, be careful because it is God who's assigned them to you. The number of times, John, I have wrestled with the Lord saying, really? You can have them back if you'd like them. Or, I really want that one. You know, the, the question is not what you have, not what you don't have. The question is, what, what are you doing? What are you doing with it? Two words, words and deeds. That's how, this, that's how it breaks out. Let's, let's just walk back real quickly here before we get to that. It moves along fairly quickly. I said to you that personal humility is proven in relationship to one another. We saw last week in verses 4 and 5 that Paul adapts language. Any good speaker, any good communicator is going to know something about his demographic, and he's going to pull things 
from that demographic that's going to be enable that's going to enable him to immediately make contact with the people. I did a fair amount of speaking when I was in graduate school, and one of the things that I used to be debriefed on by the placement office was where I was going. I was in the Chicago land area, but it was it was pretty wild to think that I, I went inner if I go closer to the city of Chicago, it's going to be this this group of people. If I go further outside of Chicago, it's going to be that people. And I remember blisteringly cold. Midwestern morning, Sunday morning before the sun was even coming up, driving in a car that I didn't know was going to get another five miles up to Milwaukee to meet with a church plant that was meeting in a movie theater. And I needed to know, who am I going to step, step in front of? And once I get a little bit more knowledge of who those people were, I was able to do a little bit more research and understand, okay, this is what makes these people tick. So here's some of the words I'm going to use, and here's some of the words I'm not going to use. Here's some of the concepts I'm going to try to lay out in front of them, knowing that they'll have categories to grab them. I better stay away from this because they're not going to understand that. And as soon as I tell them that my name is Mark, they're going to know that I'm not from Chicago. <laughs> but I leveraged that. And so I, I let them make fun of me because I'm from Boston. And you Staten Islanders, and I'm the one that talks funny. There are no malls or coffee in Boston. Nobody walks their dog. And my mother is her, not her. But I'm the guy that parks his car in Harvard Yard. So Paul adapts this everyday language, the language of the guilds. Uh, the unions, they all have this in common. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. That's verse 4, verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members of one another. Or as a, a couple English translations say, we literally belong to each other. That just messes with my head. It really does. The word belong is literally is not there in the, in the original language, but it's entirely appropriate to, to, to assimilate it and to bring it there. We are of one another is literally what the text says, which is simply to say we belong to one another. Think about that for five minutes this afternoon when you get home, before you put the TV on. Go home, put coffee on, sit down for a second, and ask yourself, what is it like to, to, to think about belonging to one another? Look around the room before you leave and look at a person that you don't know very well and say, I belong to that person. Because it's literally the truth if, you, if we believe what the Word of God says. The Holy Spirit, watch this now, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, right? The Old Testament, having been poured out now by the Father and the Son, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy creates a new community. This is, this is radical. Those followers of Christ are, are a unique community within their community. We ought to be different. They ought to be distinguishing marks of this community as opposed to the one that we live in, as opposed to Staten Island, as opposed to New York, as opposed to America. You're not American if you're in Christ. You're a Christian first, by far. And be real careful about Christian American or American Christian. Because those are two things that do not go together. It's a massive issue facing us right now, especially everything that's gone on in the last month or so. 
this conflation of country with Christianity. I don't see Paul teaching allegiance to the country being any way near allegiance to the coming of the kingdom of God. We belong to one another. We belong to one another. To what end? Glad you asked, because he's going to show us. We are a diverse membership. Remember we talked about baseball team? Remember? Talked about baseball? What was the other thing I talked about? Somebody really impressed me here. A baseball team, and what was the other thing I used? That if everybody was the same thing, where would this be? If everybody was a catcher, you wouldn't have a baseball team. We're diverse, but members of the same team. What's the other illustration that I used? Come on, somebody really impressed me. Say it again. Uh, an orchestra. If everybody wanted to play the fiddle, you wouldn't have an orchestra. Same kind of thing. John, you're an ear. I'm an eye. Here's a foot. I'm really tempted to keep going, but I'm not going to, because it's going to be nothing but trouble. A diverse membership, creatively and corporately united in Christ. Remember, we camped on those two words, in Christ. That I'm going to go to my grave telling you that the two most important words in the Bible are in Christ. You can put that on my tombstone, in Christ. That's, that's our guild. That's our union. That's what unites this community. Nothing else first except that in Christ. We can talk about a thousand other things after that. I'll be glad to. I like to knit. I like to sew. I like to play baseball. I like to surf. I like to read. I like to run. I like to, amen, amen, to the glory of God. But that's all subsumed under in Christ. Let's be sure nothing gets up and around that in Christ. So when I look at you, Vicki, you've got in Christ tattooed on your forehead. Matt, I look at you, in Christ tattooed on your forehead. And the two of you, just from the eye test, are rather different people. But you're in Christ. That's, that's the first thing I have to see. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. That's a game changer. Because what happens if Vicky and Matt walk into the store together? They're not seeing them in Christ. They're seeing Matt, male, clearly has distinct characteristics about his face, about his body that suggest he may not be from here. Vicky, on the other hand, looks more like other people on Staten Island. And so all these categories happen. They get slotted. We have to fend that up. See, that's all the way back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed, because that's the pattern of the age. That's the pattern of the age that makes judgments based on the appearance of somebody that you don't even know. Or, as bad, you make judgments on people because you know what they watch. Or you know how they voted. Oh, they did that, so they're this. Do you really know? The Holy Spirit graciously gives gifts to build up the body of Christ. 
We're members of a diverse community, creatively, corporately, united in Christ, and we have gifts that differ according to the grace that God has given to us. That's verse 6. See what it says? Now let us use them. See that in verse 6? Having now let us use them. Four words, let us use them. Each and every one of you has a gift. Question I want you to continue to ask yourself, am I using this gift? You may have a preliminary question. What is my gift? Fair enough. Let's have that conversation. But now four words, let us use them. Do you know what your gifts are, and are you using them? And if you are using them, to what end? To what end? So here are the gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. None of the four lists in the New Testament are exhaustive. They're situational. Yes, there's overlap in some of the gifts, especially Paul's lists, because some of them are unchanging regardless of what the demographic is. But some of them are also situational. Hey, Corinth, what's going on with all this tongue speaking and why you think that's so spectacular? Pro tip, it ain't. Let's put them in the right place. I wish you'd prophesy 10,000 10, words. I speak, speak in a tongue, 10,000 words. I wish you'd prophesy one word by comparison. Our gifts are expressions of God's grace and His creativity. Paul unpacks this in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't have the time to take us, to take, for me to take you there. I'm sorry. But they are expressions of God's grace and creativity. And they're of two types. Words, deeds. Words. According to God's grace, mind you. Verse 6. Prophecy in proportion to our better, the faith. If prophecy in proportion to the faith. Prophecy, not, not thus says the Lord. That gift, the, the, the Old Testament prophet, gone. New Testament prophet, gone. But the gift of prophecy, my understanding, lives on. Bringing verbally to the church what God spontaneously brings to your mind. I'm prophesying in part right now. Because not everything I'm saying to you is on this paper. So I'm preaching, but there's also some prophesying going on as well. But you'll never ever hear me say, thus says the Lord, unless my finger's on that verse. Because I am not equivalent, anyway near equivalent, the authority of this word. No pope, no bishop, no pastor had better ever get anywhere near the equivalent of the authority of the word of God. Let's be clear about that. But the gift of prophecy, yes. You might come alongside somebody and say, you know, the Lord's really been laying on my heart to share this with you. You receive that word from somebody, the first thing you ought to do is examine it against Scripture. Because there are a lot of people There are a lot of people who made a mockery of the faith that I love by prophesying about what was going to go on in this country over the last month, month and a half, and they were dead wrong. And not one of them has come forward yet and repented. I'm sorry. I have to work really hard at not letting this get its upper hand on me. I'm readily confessing that in front of you. In the name of Christ, people being broadcasted around the world declaring thus and so, and they were wrong. That's a false prophet. Biblically, that's a false prophet and ought to be rejected. Prophecy in proportion to the faith. 
In other words, this is the standard. This is the standard. Teddy, you come to me and say, Pastor Mark, I got a word from the Lord. I think you should hear it. I'm going to listen to you, Teddy, and I'm going to have my Bible in my hand. I'm going to say, let's see if it's here. And if it is, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be sure I don't miss that. But if, if Teddy, good-natured man that he is, has this word, and it comes from some other source than this, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell Teddy, I'm going to look him right in the eye, I'm going to tell him I love him, I'm going to tell him I can't find it in the word of God, let's try to figure out what it is that he's experiencing. That's how it works. That's how it works. Not apostolic authority, not Old Testament prophet authority. Let me be very clear about that. Signed, sealed, and delivered. But God spontaneously bringing things to mind for you to share with the body of Christ at any given time? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. That's why, that's why the role of elders is huge. Because we're the guardians. Elders had better know their Bibles frontwards and backwards because anytime somebody opens their mouth and says that, we have to know. We're the guardians. We're responsible for truth and error in this pulpit. That's why I will, I will never, ever, and the Lord knew, I will never, ever be a megachurch pastor. Never. No way near enough accountability for me. No way near. With the celebrity culture, I would lose my mind. And we don't have to look very far in today's newspapers to see how that has shipwrecked the faith for many. Terrifies me. My wife will tell you, I walk around for a day or two literally nauseous at the thought of it. It literally makes me nauseous. And I'm grateful for that. Not that I'm above it, but it terrifies me. You know why? Because I look at you every Sunday and I think, I would have to stand in front of you and tell you that's what I just did. I can't bear the thought of it. That's why I absolutely need you. If you don't do anything else for me, pray that I do not succumb to any of that temptation and have to someday look you, people for whom I, uh, whom I love, and say, I got to go because I've done this. The one who teaches in his teaching, this is instructing, maturing, maturing the body of Christ, and it's all according to God's word. This overlap between prophesying and teaching, but separate, different things. I'm teaching you right now. I teach in Sunday school. You don't have to do this to be a teacher. You can teach a small Bible study. You can teach one. You can disciple one-on-one. You can be teaching your children. You can be teaching your spouse. You can be teaching your neighbor that which is able to understand the word of God and transmit it in such a way that other people get it. There are teachers in this room. I'm not the only one. That's in verse 7. The third verbal, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This This isn't necessarily, we hear exhortation. Let's go! Let's go! Keep it up! You're doing great! You're wonderful! Let's go! That's... That's, that's, that's what I think about exhort. I, you know, I, I revert back to my coaching days. What are you doing? Uh, exhortation, is, exhortation isn't vain popping in the middle of your forehead all the time. It's encouraging. It's comforting. It's counseling. Are you the person that when somebody else sits down, have a cup of coffee, they walk away, say, wow, my life is better because I just spent an hour with you. I love to tell this story. I've had a handful, I don't know, a handful of 
of occasions where I've been in counseling situations with other people, I, in, in an hour, I literally, honest to God, literally have said five words. Literally. Not, not many of these situations, but a handful of them over the course of the years. I literally have said, good morning, and then let's pray. And they get up and they walk out of the room and they think I'm the second coming of Jesus. And all I did was listen. That's all. I just listened. People just want to have somebody to talk to. You don't, you don't need a PhD in psychology. It doesn't hurt. Well, it could. Just listen. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. It's ironic that a speaking gift would be so embedded to listening. Encouraging, comforting, counseling. You could do that verbally. You could do that writing notes. Encourage the Lancasters this week. Write them an email. Some of you have the gift of exhortation. Comforting. You're comforting. You're encouraging. Those are the verbal ones. Here, here are the, the deeds, the nonverbal ones. It's verse 7. If service in our serving. Well, Pastor, shouldn't all Christians be servants? Well, yes. This is obviously something that's a little bit different. You know these people. You might be one of them. You know, here, we used to say this of Rob Cologne, didn't we? We used to say this of Rob Cologne. You look up in the Christian dictionary, servant, and Rob Cologne's picture's there. What a compliment that is, right? He's doing well, by the way. But wouldn't, that'd be okay if I meet my, my Lord on the last day, and he opens up the book, and, you know, definition of servant, and, oh, there you are, Pastor Marco. Come on in. Cool, I'm good. Service in our serving. Practical helps. It's literally, the word behind it, literally the deacon. The word, it's literally what we get the word deacon from. Deacon, helping out with the nuts and bolts stuff so that the elders are free to prayer and, prayer and study the word. Practical help, deep, and it's modeled on Jesus, right? You, you assume that, right? Jesus the deacon. Mark 10, 45, son of man did not come to serve, to be, to be, to be served, but to serve. Jesus Christ sinless son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a model. If it's not below Jesus' pay grade, it better not be below mine. The one who contributes in generosity, or another translation, the one who shares in simplicity. Money's going on here. It's not just the sharing of money, but it's big. It's a big category. It's a primary category sharing monetarily or other goods and services freely, not stingily. Freely. You write that check, free. Uh, I don't want to give away this much money. Uh-uh. You don't have that gift. Give it away. Be generous. We built into Hannah from the time she was two. I want you to grow up and be a person that is known as generous. So over tip. Don't, don't be that person who leaves 7%. I know you're all in different financial situations. Don't look at the bottom of the receipt to find out what 15% is. You can part with another five bucks and it's not going to upset your life probably at all. And that person schlepping dirty dishes for below minimum wage, waiting on tips. That's one way you can exercise a gift like this. One who contributes in generosity. Singular, it's focused. You can't be deterred from it. The one who leads with zeal, verse 8. Leaders ought to be eager 
diligent, focused, with zeal. Laziness is a sin. Laziness is a sin. I can't tell you the number of leaders, the number of leaders, higher leaders, people with bigger authority than I have, leaders that are just lazy because they're not accountable. It's not that I have to give an account to the elders about every single minute. There's a level of trust that's there. But the elders will tell you, I let them know what I'm doing. And, and one of my famous lines, and the elders will bear me out on this as well, is that they'll know that I, I don't like to act unilaterally. The one who acts, does acts of mercy, do so with cheerfulness. Particularly, this is particularly among the poor. Remember, first century Rome, house churches here, no pay grade involved. So the upper echelon is told to serve the lower echelon. Can you imagine that? Particularly among the poor, the elderly, the sick, the disabled, not begrudgingly. Many of you in this room are displaying acts of mercy on a day-to-day -day basis. You're, you're caring for people who are not going to be able to pay you back. Trust me, God's keeping a note of it. But don't do it begrudgingly. You probably don't have the gift of Mercy, if all you do is grind your teeth every time you go out on a visit. I just love to give mercy. Two o'clock in the morning and the phone rings. Churches in Nepal, northwest of Bangladesh, between China and India, made the news not too long ago because church, the churches get together, and what they do, they built two nursing homes for older Christian women, widows, left by their families and communities because they confessed faith in Christ. And the churches gathered together and looked at this and saw all of these women and said, we, we've got to do something about this. That's an act of mercy. That's an act of mercy. And so they built these homes for these aged women who would otherwise be just thrown away. So here's the way forward. We're done. Thank you for your patience. I get going on these things, man. I just the idea of this being a countercultural community just it just jazzes me up. I can't stop. I cannot stop. I so long, I so long for a distinct kingdom community that the world looks at and says, I want that. There's much talk about a new normal. And I've been telling people every opportunity I have, I can't wait to get back to normal. What's the new normal going to be? I can't tell you the number of times I hear that in a day. And I'm very quick to come in behind that and say to the people, normal's gone. I know that's hard for some of us to hear, particularly those of us in the older guard who are just so used to things being done particular ways and we, we're, we're too old to change. Please, please, I, I, I'm literally pleading with you. Don't buy that line. Don't buy that line. about what life will be like post-pandemic. I've spoken about the virus being like a giant magnifying glass. This, the Lord is only affirming this more and more in my heart and mind, in my own life, as well as in the lives of those around me. Uh, the virus as a, as a giant magnifying glass just enveloped, just laying over the world. And what is it doing? It's making smaller, it's making larger things that have been small and making things that had been unseen now seen. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What you thought was a little problem is now getting magnified, and what you thought wasn't even there is now being exposed. And we're seeing it in institutions. We're seeing it in individual lives. We're seeing it in churches. So I'm going to ask you straightforward, 
what is what is new normal going to be like for you? Whenever, whenever, whatever this is, is whatever over means. Are you going to go, I'm glad I can just get back to the way I was living? Safe, comfortable, non-threatening? What's that magnifying glass doing for your own soul? What is it doing for this church? I'm telling the elders, I'm wearing myself out with the elders, I'm telling them, don't think that the new normal is just putting the chairs back where they were and, you know, and the worship team comes back and we're all back and doing that with the bulletins being handed out. I'm not going to go back there. God's stirring. God is shaking his church. He's purifying his church. And I want on that train. I'm not going back. How about you? Are you ready for a new normal? Are you ready to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit that has been graciously given to you for the building up of the body of Christ? I'm asking you, church. I'm asking you. And I'm, I'm asking you literally. Are you ready? Are you ready for something new? Are you ready for a new normal? Are you ready to look in the mirror and say, Lord, what are my gifts? And how can I get in the game? Because it's clear that he wants each and every one of us in this new season to find out what those gifts are and to use them. Use them for the maturing of the Christ, of the body of Christ. We need you. We need you. You're needed in order to fulfill God's radical vision of corporate unity that's marked by creative diversity. I literally need you. Closing statement. Here it is. Remember these three things and be encouraged. The source of your gift is God's grace. He's the giver. The source of your gifts is God's grace. Don't belittle it. Those gifts are sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit. Those gifts. So the giver is God. The distributor is the Holy Spirit of his gifts. He apportions them where he pleases. Third, the giver of the gifts. What's the goal? The goal, the goal, John, of you playing guitar, the goal of Moise handling the technology, the goal of me preaching right now, is the maturity of the body of Christ. And as the church grows and matures, God will be glorified. Think about it, right? You have a child, you have an infant. The parent is glorified as that child grows. Wow, you did a pretty good job parenting. You see what I'm saying? Same as with the body of Christ. As the body of Christ matures, people say, who's your, who's, who's your father? Who's leading this? Jesus Christ. To, to, the glory, to glory be his, to his name. He's doing this work right here. The source of our gifts is God, his grace, sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit, and the objective is the building up of the body of Christ. The objective is the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.16, you can come up. Ephesians 4.16, that's where I leave you. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In love. What a place to end, because if God is willing, you, you know where we're going to begin next week? Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. You want in? Do you want to help define what new normal is going to be? Give real serious consideration to what has just been taught over you. And ask the Lord, 
What's your part? What's your role? How are you going to be transforming agent in this radical new community that God's sifting and raising up for a lost and dying world? Our Father, we thank you. And I thank you, I th- I thank you for answering my prayer to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit because I really test these people's patience. I understand that. And I, I pray and I give thanks for their patience. This is throwing stuff to me, Father, and I pray it is for them. I pray that you would come in the power of the Holy Spirit, deposit your grace here, that we might grab it, run with it, be part of it, that Christ might be glorified from one end of the earth to the other, and that the body of Christ may be matured, even in the most difficult of times. We ask these things humbly, Father, in his name, for his glory. Amen.